Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Oxo non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Dr. Mark Goulston, Dr. G, is a Marshall Goldsmith 100 coach member and coaches entrepreneurs, CEOs, chairs, and managing directors to become the best versions of themselves. Now, he's more than just a coach. He has 25 years as a psychiatrist, a former FBI and police hostage negotiator, but most importantly, he is here for a very honest, transparent conversation about things that are important to us, about living to give and giving to live. Mark, thank you for being here and for taking the time. Well, thank you for having me, Marcus. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, I've been uh, excited about this for a long time. We talked about the importance of humor. Why is humor so important? Well, because I think when we're feeling humor, we, we relax. And when we relax, other people relax. And when we come off as too stiff and lacking a sense of humor, it communicates a kind of anxiety. Mm. People will say, well, it's not anxiety, it's respect. You know, that's what we've taught in the military. That's what we're taught in martial arts. But sort of like begets like. Mm. That's why I think bearing one's neck begets Mm -hmm. helping other people to bear their neck. And uh, can I actually dive into something because you just trigger something? Please. Please. So I'm facing my mortality. I'm about to have something called a bone marrow transplant because I'm heading towards uh, acute myeloid leukemia and hopefully it'll work. And I, I'm cautiously uh, optimistic. Yeah. And I started a channel on YouTube called I'm Dying to Tell You and a channel on TikTok, I'm Dying to Tell You, because in the time I have left, I'm trying to share what I've learned from 50 years in my professional life listening to people. And I'm sharing various things. And one of the episodes from I'm Dying to Tell You, which is one of my favorites, and it gets back to humor, but also gets back to burying your neck, is I've discovered the power of true vulnerability as an openness, not vulnerable in the negative way, oh, in danger. And I want to share an anecdote with you. And if I'm not mistaken, I could be taking a chance. At the end of this anecdote, you're going to say, well, Mark, count me in. (laughs) So about, I don't know, five months ago, I uh, had a conversation with someone because I basically live to serve, live to give. It's just who I am. And normally when I speak to someone and they say, how are you doing? I said, well, I'm fine. What's going on? Uh, what's going on with you? Uh, how can I help you? Where are you trying to get to? And, uh, and let's see where we can go. And about five months ago, 
one of these people, you know, reached out to me and they said, well, how are you doing, Mark? And I don't know what got into me. And I said, well, I got a couple issues. And you could see, you know, that, you know, they were a little bit distracted because it was a transactional kind of conversation from their point of view. And then I just looked into the camera and they said, well, what's going on, Mark? I said, I might be dying. And I paused. Then I got emotional. Then I got embarrassed. Then I apologized. And then I looked away and I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I apologize. And that began the series of many calls. And he said, don't apologize. I said, ah, oh, you know, I just, I'm sorry. And he said, don't say that. And then what these people have been telling me, and they're mainly men, is astonishing. So one of them said to me, don't apologize, Mark. This is a gift. And I said, how is this a gift? And he said, this is the most emotionally intimate conversation I've ever had. Wow. Then another person on another call, I got emotional again. And I apologized, and he said the same thing. And he said, I envy you. And he said, why would you envy me? He said, oh, you can have your illness. I don't want your illness. He said, but the fact that you're so open, that you're trusting me, that you feel safe with me completely, he said, I've never felt that way with anyone. And then what started to happen is these are very busy people. And if I approach them with some cockamamie business idea, they would say, well, that sounds interesting, Mark. I'm kind of busy. I wish you luck with it. And they would have ghosted me. But what's been happening is they're starting to say 24-7, Mark. And I say, what is 24-7? And they say, you can call me 24-7. And these are busy people. And I've been trying to figure out what is, why are they saying that? And what I realized is, well, I guess something in my being open touched them. But the 24-7 was just as much for them as it was for me because they wanted to have more of a conversation like that because it was so rare in their life. So what I've been sharing with people is, and we talked about sense of humor, uh, lowering your guard, mm -hmm. and, and I'm suggesting that if you can be open with other people and lower your guard, they will be open with you. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it creates that reciprocity. We we want to do that. The more that you're giving, the more it makes me want to give. The deeper I want to be here. As you would say, I want you to feel felt, but not just feel it. I want you to experience it coming back to you from that concept. And I absolutely feel it here. So we need more of these conversations. And as you say, especially busy people, they're surrounded by all these artificially inflated conversations that ultimately don't have any meaning by comparison to mortality. I think you know my story. Flatline on the table, I didn't know it was coming, but as we're going down to the, the operating room and I realized this is something they are going to have to put me under for, they're going to have to do a complete dissectomy, fuse my neck. I can't, I'm starting to not be able to breathe at this point because I'm paralyzed from the neck down. It makes me really understand 
oh shit, this is important. I can't walk this off. I can't get a shot and just keep going. But for me, I had about 10 seconds before they put on the anesthesia and then I start to go into that place. We get up in the ICU, still paralyzed, still trying to figure out where the hell am I, what's going on. But the wake up call, I call it the gift of adversity. For me, that punch in the face made everything else fall away, made everything else not important and helped me understand what was important. And for me, it was crazy because I knew this stuff all along. I was very, very aware of it, but I just kept pushing it to the side or I pat myself on the back for being smart about being aware of it, but never executing on it, never putting it into play, not on a very deep level, not like at the level that you're talking about. So if we can do this for other people. Yeah, so say more about you. You're the host, but let's go deeper into this conversation. So, so talk about realizing it viscerally instead of just intellectually and then what proceeded from there? Well, it, I had to go through the, the Kubler-Ross five stages first. I had to actually, because I was in denial for a long time. I'm 38 years old, joined the military late, but was physically able to push my body. So just being accustomed as a soldier to say, this is difficult, this is painful, push it down, keep moving. And then when the doctors are saying, the good news is you get to live to tell the tale, the bad news is this is what you're left with. Well, whatever. They just told me I flatlined a couple of times. I should be able to walk this off. So that humerus kept me propped up until after a couple of weeks, it was like, if this was going to happen, it would have happened by now. And then for me, the first step is denial. Second step is anger. But that step in between that bridge is regret. All the times that you said you were going to do something, all the people you're going to have the conversations with, all those things that you were promising yourself. And yet you didn't take action on them because you assumed that you had time. Because you assumed that you would always have the capacity, right? And then when you start to see the Buddhists, right? They say that we are all dying. And I understand that. But it's very different when you see it before you. And dare I say on another level, knowing that you still have 40 or 50 years of life, but you're going to be paralyzed from the neck down and have zero autonomy. Somebody's going to have to take care of you you have no freedom to do a lot of these things that you've taken for granted your whole life. In a lot of ways, that's even more difficult, at least it felt like to me at the time, that was even harder to accept. And so that put me in a very dark place. The definition of depression is anger directed inwards. Classic example, that's what I was doing. I was mean to everybody that would come in to try to take care of me. And it forced me to go into that place of deep reflection and regret and understanding that it was too late to try to bargain, too late to try to pray, hoping that this would change everything. I had to just accept the reality of what it was. And then from that place, and that took four months, I knew I had to find something to counteract the anger. But uh, the opposite of anger for many people is love. For me, frankly, I did not have that a lot of that around me. And so I had to find something that I could actually execute on and take action towards. And that was genuine, no bullshit, 360 gratitude. And it's easy to be grateful when everything's going well. But when it's not and things are hard and you're facing probably the most difficult 
time of your life, at least up to that point, it's very easy to not find gratitude. So for people that are using gratitude journals and things, I think that's fantastic. But I think that the opportunity to really find gratitude is within hardship, within those difficult times when we don't want to the most is when we need it the very most. I did the the Taoist Zen mentality of, I'm going to remove myself from the equation. Did anybody benefit from my injury? No, no, no. I feel like I have no control. Started breathing, just doing very simple breathing to give my sympathetic nervous system the chance to calm down, get back into at least a place of neutrality where I could be honest. And then I realized this injury, in my opinion, would have happened no matter where I was. So if I was in the United States or if I was deployed in Afghanistan, I would have been injured. So had I been in Afghanistan, and ironically, they had pushed our deployment back a couple of times. So if we'd have been outside the wire, outside the line of departure in like a hot zone, for every one man that is injured in, in combat, it takes two to pull into safety. So that means my team would have been compromised. Another team would have had to cover down. Another battalion, a big helicopter, a Chinook would have had to come into a hot zone. So for me, I was grateful not that I was injured, but that nobody else was in that situation. Nobody else was put in harm's way because of me. And while we understand that as soldiers, we signed the paper, it was the cornerstone for me. That was the first, because it was being grateful for something that did not benefit me whatsoever. But God, it felt good to make sure that nobody else was hurt. At least that was something. And then I began from that cornerstone I could build. I'm grateful for this bed that I may never get out of. I'm grateful for these people that put up with me for being an ass. And then two weeks after I kind of had that real gratitude, I started getting a little bit of feeling back on my left hand. And it wasn't a lot. But man, when you're in that dark place, like even that sliver of light, is illuminating. And that was the beginning of almost a two-year process of physical and occupational therapy. And then you get out. Uh, I was training to be a chiropractic physician before I joined the military, but I still have neuropathy in my hands and my feet. So to be able to palpate a spine, to actually get the correct contact point and deliver the adjustment, I wouldn't have been able to do that properly. So going back to school is out of the question. So again, you go through this physical adversity and then you get out. I'm almost 41, almost 42 at that point. And now the adversity of where's purpose. But I am finding, and I believe we all understand this. The only meaning that adversity has in our life is the meaning that we assign it. But we have to be courageous enough to accept it wholeheartedly. Let go of what we think it should be. Let go of if it's fair or not. Let go of what we hope it will be and just see it for what it is and then say, okay, now what do I do? What am I willing to do? And am I courageous to make those steps every day? So can you dive a little deeper into not accepting to accepting? Yeah. I realized, I knew instinctively that my anger wasn't helping me recover. I knew deep down that it was actually inhibiting any capacity that I had. And so for me, I had tried everything else, lying into bed for months, having them prop you up, turn on Netflix and say, we'll check on you to give you your meds later. And finally, I just said, can you please just turn it off? I just want to be here in this. And 
I'm, I can't do anything. I, I was literally suicidal, but I couldn't act on it. So again, there's that victim. You're wrestling with that idea as well. It's like, I can't even do this thing. And then eventually you just have to let all those things go and realize this is literally outside of my control. And then once we, once we capitulate and surrender, it's the irony, right? Once we do that, that's when we can become even slightly victorious. That radical honesty of what's going on. And for me, that helped me. This physical trauma was affecting me now, but then I unpacked my divorce up that led up to joining the military, which led to what led to this, all the way back to my parents' divorce as a young man at eight years old. So it helped me go back and say, look at the connection. Oh, look at that connection. Oh, look at how that created this characteristic, this coping mechanism, this capacity, this mask. And then you could just follow those breadcrumbs all the way back. And then that gave me the ability to realize if I'm in this place and this is what I have and this is all I can do, then I might as well lean into it. And that's when that acceptance came in. That's when that ability to say, this isn't what I want, but it's what I've got. And I think that for everybody, there's a part of them that they're facing that they know is difficult, whether it be a difficult conversation, whether it be a, a relationship, whether it be a job that they want to do or the, the one that they want to get out of, whatever it is. But the more that we can be courageous enough to listen to that, in my mind and in my experience from working with people as well, once you are able to give them that permission and they have that space and they realize that that they have the capacity and the bandwidth to allow this thing to unfold. It doesn't have to just be pushed down. It doesn't have to be avoided. The analogy from Already Free, the book, uses this idea. He says, if you continually push the difficulty away, you eventually just revolve around it. You just keep pushing it to the side. And now you're just rotating around it like it's literally your your purpose, like that's your gravity, like that's what you do. And then vicariously, what do we do? We push that onto our family. And now their entire life rotates around the notion that I cannot look at this one thing that I fear, that I have shame around, whatever that is. And I know that was a long answer and I don't know if I answered it, but was that kind of what you were talking about? I'm too busy being mesmerized. <laughs> So yeah, you, you, uh, you did well. I have a friend who uh, we've become close friends. She and her husband own a toy company called Melissa and Doug. And anybody who has young children knows about it. They uh, have these wonderful toys uh, for young children. It helps them open their minds. And, and something she shared with me, which I've been kind of wrapping my head and my feelings around since she mentioned she said that um, if we can identify a feeling we're having, identify it, give it a name, and just lean into it as purely as possible and feel it, it dissipates in less than 90 seconds. But close to 100% of people don't do that. 
oh, I'm feeling anxious. I better do something or else I'm going to get panicky. Oh, I'm feeling depressed. I better do something or else I'm going to have to end it all. And, and I've been practicing that. And so I'll get these waves of sadness where I, uh, yeah, even with this treatment I'm about to embark on, I'm probably not going to see my grandchildren into their teens. There are five and there's four of them, five and under. I adore them. And uh, they'll come over and I, I keep a distance because I, I wear an N5, N95 surgical mask, you know, everywhere. And, uh, and when I allow it, I, can I really can just feel it come up and out into just feeling it. And then it does seem to go away. And I've been trying to share that with other people uh, because I, I don't know that it's always true, but uh, it, it's very counterintuitive. Something else I'll share, because a lot of people are asking me about, you know, why are you so peaceful if you could be dying? And there's all kinds of things that are coming to me that I'm trying to share. But not too long ago, I thought, I fully accept that I might die. I hope I won't, but I fully accept that I might. And that allowed me to let go of having to live. And a lot of people say, well, you got to fight it. You got to be positive to do all these things. I'm very positive, but more than that, I'm at peace. I've been chasing peace of mind for 70 years. And now that I finally have it, I'll trade your peace of mind for, you know, take the hill <laughs> any day. And, and I'm just sharing that with people that if the opposite were true, instead of accepting that I might die and letting go of having to live, if it was, I can't accept that I'm going to die, uh, I have to live, I guess that could, could be motivating. I am following uh, the directions of this amazing doctor and his team. And that's another thing I've learned. Have an amazing team in your life, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a business partner, whether it's someone in your squad. Because I think if I didn't have this amazing doctor in this team, I don't think I'd be that much at peace because I had seen someone before him was very bright, but was very arrogant. And someone I'd be hesitant to ask questions to. And so I think 50% of my peace of mind is, you know, finding the best possible team and having trust and confidence in them. And just as I told him after our first meeting, and he has 265 five-star patient reviews, nobody has that. Mm -hmm. And at the end of our first meeting, I said, you're amazing. And win, lose, or die, I'm good to go. But it was very calming. So, uh, can you track with any of what I'm what I'm saying? Absolutely. When you were talking to Rhett, you were talking about this feeling of completeness, this feeling of wholeness, this feeling of I don't have the stuff I have to get done. I don't have to do anything. For me, lying in a bed, realizing that the amount of money that I'm going to have is just going to be a number on a piece of paper or a, or a computer screen or the kind of clothes I wear or the 
the house that I want to live in really does not matter. It helps you truly understand what's real and what's not, what's important and what's not, and how much bullshit we were given importance and prioritization compared to the things that really are. And so, like you said, time with family, time with your grandchildren, that radical acceptance in yourself, understanding where you are, not beating yourself up for why am I not trying to fight this thing? Uh, you know, what does this capitulation mean? It doesn't mean anything. It just means that you're at this place where this is the reality. You're accepting it for what it is. You're not trying to rage against it. Not this desperate last throws of something that there's this mentality in martial arts warriors. Uh, the, the samurai would do a, a death ceremony before they would go on campaign. So they would give them that peace. Their estate would be taken care of. They knew that their family would be taken care of. They knew everything would be taken care of so that when they're in combat, they can have that mushin, that no-mindedness to be present. So now that they can just respond, not react, they can be in that place where they see the movement, they see the, the formation, whatever it is, and now their technique, their skill set, their instincts are true, and they will lead them. And if they're meant to survive, fantastic. And if they are not, fantastic. No expectation. Just the presence of the process right now in this moment. And that for some, especially Westerners, that feels very defeatist, like it's a cop-out. But it's not. If anything, it's em it emboldens you. It allows you to have that presence of mind. So when you're practicing martial arts with a person, especially in a controlled environment, when it's very playful, as we were talking about the need for humor, the Brazilians call it puppy play. We're just having fun here. We're in a controlled environment. And yeah, we're, we're trying to, you know, make each other better. But at the same time, if you get me in a position and you've, it's, I'm about to go unconscious or one of my joints is about to break. I just tap it. I say, Hey, good job. I learned. And then those analogies go forever. So even you in this beautiful practice of the way you do things, some people confuse psychiatry and psychology and coaching, and they think that they are all one and the same. But for you, you have this beautiful mastery of just the subject of the human and the areas where they are facing friction. And you can just be present and see, oh, I see this, I connect this, I impact this, tell me more about this. That's interesting. Why does that mean something to you, et cetera? And now you're courageous enough to do it to yourself without any kind of cognitive bias, without any confirmation bias, just looking at it and saying, okay, every morning, where am I at? What's important? Why is that important? And really, is it important? Or am I just making this thing more important than it needs to be? Because I want to distract myself from the anxiety, this emotion, or this fear, or this expectation. So who's currently in your family? My parents are still alive. I'm married about five years ago, and I have a 21-year-old stepdaughter. And uh, I have some family that's, that's out and about, but for the most part, those are my most direct relations. So where would, where would you like to get better at? Or what would you like to get better at as you look at yourself in, in your life? To do what you're talking about, to live, to give this whole idea of, I'm finding the more authentically I can accept who I am and look at my, the reality, right? Good, bad, and different. The beauty of adversity is it burns away. It doesn't show us who we are. It tells us what we are not. 
It shows us these false things that we've held on to. And when we're at that place of being broken down, we don't have the, the capacity or the desire or the energy to maintain facades. And then we can just exhale, as you would say, get to that place. Uh, for me, it would be to be a better coach, to to be better at all these things that we're talking about, frankly. I find that when we have an experience that changes our life, it helps us recognize that emotion in us if we pay attention. But more importantly, it helps us recognize the behavior in others, which allows us to help them. Or like you said, push back or call them on their BS if they're trying to give us something that is not true. That's what I want to do. Speaking on stages, that's fantastic. Uh, writing books, those are things are fantastic. And having conversations with people like you, those are literally why I'm alive. After having a second chance and realizing that I can't go back to chiropractic school, this experience happened. And the meaning that I assign the adversity is how can I give this knowledge to other people that are receptive? And as you said, um, I did my first, I did my TEDx seven years ago. My first book came out six years ago. Had I followed the hustle and grind mentality of what everybody else is telling me, I would have pushed on all these things and done all this other stuff. It's like, but I just wanted to see how was the book received? How, what did I not give properly? How did I not give the correct instruction? Or after a keynote, you have the Q&A. That's where you learn. Why is everybody asking the same question? I feel like I'm teaching them properly. Well, let's look back. There's something that I'm missing if I have three or four people asking the same question that I feel that I'm preemptively addressing before we get there. In martial arts, um, they say one teaches and two learn. And that's, I've had situations where I would teach martial arts to uh, a large class and you would see every person making the exact same mistake to, to the exact person, 30 people in the same class making the same mistake of dropping their hand. Where is that coming from? And then I can see myself in the mirror as I'm demonstrating, I'm talking with my other hand, throwing the punch and saying this. So in their mind, they're imitating exactly what I'm saying. They're mirroring me perfectly. It's because I was not doing it properly. And it sounds silly, but that's, again, one teach, two learn. I'm learning from that student. And then that intention turns into one teaches to learn. One teaches to continue to learn, to evolve, to see what am I missing. What's this perspective? Where am I blind? So um, that would be what I want to improve. In my mind, just like what, you, what you're saying, all these other ancillary benefits come along once I continue to do the work deeply and efficiently in a way that actually changes other people. This Back to your notion to live to give and give to live. That's it. So I'd like you to imagine uh, it's three years from now and you do a 360 of your life. And every direction you look, it's better than you could ever have imagined. So what do you see? It's three years from now, from your personal life, you know, from your marriage, from your professional life, from your inner life with yourself. What do you see that would cause you to think, this is better than I could have ever imagined? In many ways, it feels like it's that way now, but I know that there is always additional depth to it. My wife has never been to Europe before. And this year I had a speaking event in Portugal and they said, please bring your wife. So there's all these situations where I can blend and dovetail all these things that mean something to me. 
and I guess I'm trying to process the question, I guess it would just be more of what I'm doing in an even more concentrated capacity. So not necessarily to help more, like I don't want to have a coaching practice where I'm on calls all day and I can't enjoy my time or myself or these other things, but to continue to work with people that are willing, willing to do the work are actually applying it even when it's difficult. The CEO that's willing to step back and detach and say, how am I failing my people? Why are they all to the person making the same mistake? To the CEO that you unpack the fact that they have an unhealthy relationship with money and then that affects the CFO that they hire or the CMO. And now they recreate that dynamic within their business. And you're able to say, this is why you keep running into these things. To me, that that is the most important thing. Speaking on stage, that's fantastic, but it kind of kills me to think that I'm pouring my heart out on stage to try to give people something, and then you're kind of getting a golf clap, and people come up and want to get a picture with you, and then they kind of walk away, and five minutes later, it's over. I understand I'm 51, so I understand that that may be sort of human nature in some ways, but to me, I would rather go a foot deep and an inch wide than just kind of skim the surface of something and really not get a lot out of it. That's why, again, a conversation like this, when you agreed to be on, you know, it made me smile for all week. I've been looking forward to this for a while. So a a foot deep and inch wide, uh, that reminds me of a quote that I picked up from a documentary about uh, Mr. Rogers. It's not any of the well-known documentaries. I I, I think it's uh, Mr. Rogers and me. I'd encourage listeners and viewers and you to watch it. Uh, it was a, a young man, I think, in his 30s, was a neighbor of Mr. Rogers on Nantucket. And this was after Mr. Rogers retired. And one of the things that stuck with me is that Mr. Rogers said, it's always much better to be deep and simple than shallow and complex. Hmm. And just like uh, that friend of mine who told me about how when you can name, identify, and feel a feeling, it dissipates, that's kind of stuck with me also. And, and I'm just reminded of it when you said, well, you know, to go to a foot deep uh, and an inch wide. So what is something that you would like to go deeper into for your, for your own benefit and the benefit of the people around you? I would still say the the study and execution of, of everything that we're discussing here, taking all those things to a deeper level. I'm the same way in martial arts. I have found that, that there are no advanced techniques. There are simply fundamental techniques that we master and that we do well in combination in the heat of adversity or chaos or whatever it may be. So to me, it's about, again, reading your book, digesting it, applying it, studying it, getting my own data back from it, re-examining, re-engaging in it, and then making it part of who I am so that now when I'm speaking to somebody else, I can have that skill set. So in many ways, it's almost as if I can channel you and I'm this vessel to your wisdom. And now I can give that to them in a way that continues to go forward. I find so many people, coaches, entrepreneurs that talk about, you know, you can't pour from an empty vessel, but I find that they just need to put more condensed content in that vessel so that they don't have to put this artificial boundary up and they can still give entirely to whomever or whatever they feel is worthy of that endeavor and still maintain, keep themselves intact, still allow themselves to apply that energy towards themselves, toward their relationships, et cetera. 
Does, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. Let me ask you a question. So, uh, you know, this can, uh, and I would certainly accept coaching uh, because uh, there's so much for me to learn. If I were to ask your wife, how often does it seem that Marcus is in his head? I don't think that she would say that very often. Um, so some background, I took my wife to her junior prom in 1994. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to college in a different state. So we, we grew apart, break up. 28 years later, after the military and after I get out and try to get my, literally my feet back under me, if you pardon the pun, I was divorced before I joined the military. She was divorced. The editors are saying, you have to get, you know, great headshots for your book, blah, 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 blah. I look up the best photographer in Tulsa, Oklahoma, because that's where we live. Her face comes up. And I'm just like, no way. And sure enough, reach out to her on Facebook. She's like, yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, she was in in Tulsa at the time with her daughter. And she said, would you like to meet my daughter? You want to go have dinner? Now, we had a great relationship. And then we were even friends prior to that. So the, coming back to this place, it helped us understand. I had this thing that I call cleaning the slate with her. So when you meet somebody and everything is transparent and everybody is honest and all the cards are on the table, you can be really, really clear and you can have that communication. So for us, the minute that I felt there was a thorn or there was any kind of rub, I literally just said, this feels forced. What's going on? And again, what happens? We learn to dance with other partners. We take that, you know, that roll on. This is how we do it. I don't let her out of it. And I just say, please clean the slate if we're going to do this. She told me. And for both of us, that's the first relationship that we've had where we can have that truly trust that person, know that they have our back, not worried about anything, not worried about what's being said in another room if we're not there, not being worried financially about these other things. And so every night and every morning, we clean the slate. I love that concept. I love that. And, uh, and I hope that's something your listeners have heard frequently because it's amazing when you don't clean the slate how it can build up and and frequently when conflicts occur there's one person who tends to be the appeaser the the more understanding one but they gunny sack resentment over time they do and as you say and then it festers and it never festers it festers at the most inopportune time and then it blows up and now we're going to have to deal with it anyway so I call them micro adversities. Why not just have that three minute conversation now? And now you can go have dinner with the family and there's not this weird tension and there's not eggshells and other people pick up on it. All of a sudden now nobody's having a good time. Nobody's able to have fun and laugh. But if you can clean that slate and then again, we can do it with ourselves too, right? If, if we're able to step back, detach, whether it be go for a run, go for a walk, work out, meditate, whatever it is, you have this like residual emotion why am I feeling like this? Am, am I really tired or am I thinking about the next thing? Am I not being present now? Am I still dealing with the thing that happened an hour ago? Where, where am I at? And like you said, that helps us circumvent the amygdala. Now we're in a place where that was a bad five minutes, not a bad day, not a bad life, not a bad marriage, not a bad career. And then we say, oh yeah, 
I uh, had this concept I call it the adversity scale. So for all of us, we have a 10 and we have a zero or a one, whatever it is. And when we look at what we're complaining about, whether it be a slow Wi-Fi or that our latte is not hot enough, and then we compare it to other things we've been through, it keeps us honest. And then again, we also look at what other people are going through to apply that very real surgical empathy, if you will. It's one of the most pragmatic pieces of advice that we can give each other, in my opinion. Understanding how many people do we know that will say, I'm here for you, and they'll kind of feel your emotion. But of all the people that they're giving empathy to, that they don't give it to them, to themselves. They don't allow that. And so again, what is that doing? That's not cleaning the slate, building resentment. When people are trying to reflect it back, they're not allowing it, which creates dissonance, creates disconnect. And frankly, it feels, I don't want to say it feels like a lie, but it feels disingenuous. And that's not the intention. But as you pointed out many times in your work and even in all the stuff you're putting out now, if I'm using a narrative or a characteristic to cover up an emotion that I'm afraid to bear my neck from, people have to push back into that. If I'm being short or aggressive or whatever, they're going to give that right back to me which only allows me to make that emotion begin to fester even more. So clean the slate removes all of that. It removes the pressure that we allow that pressure cooker to decompress. And now we breathe. Now we realize that the world's not going to stop turning if this thing doesn't happen or that the world's not going to turn better if something good happens either. It is what it is. We're in this place. What's the reality? What can I control? And then how am I going to move forward in that process? You're amazingly disciplined. I'm listening to you. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, you're like a well-oiled machine. It's, it's fascinating. You're a well-oiled machine, doctor. Not me. Uh, oh, I just redirected that, didn't I? I didn't take the compliment. Thank you. Yeah, I have trouble taking compliments also. I, why, I, I why, why is that? Why do we do that? Why do you do it? I'll be totally honest. So one of my mentors, I I was fortunate. I've had eight mentors. They've all died. And one of them was, you know, one of the most respected thought leaders on leadership. He kind of invented the whole field. And, uh, and he would give me these compliments and I would get twisted inside out. And he said to me, he said, Mark, when someone gives you a compliment, there's only two words and two words only that you say, and those are thank you. Because if you make a big deal out of it, you're being difficult, and they're not going to want to give you a compliment again. Yes. And so as I tried to unpack that, and now I'm trying to unpack it again, uh, because you asked the question, why, why is it difficult to accept uh, the compliment? So for me, and then you can weigh in, I think there's there's an embarrassment and yet there's a part of me that really wants it. You know, it, it, it's almost like uh, I don't want the other person to realize how much I want it and need that compliment, you right. know, and, uh, and it feels sort of disingenuous. And yet uh, when we know people and they're not appreciative at all about anything about us, you know, we can take that to be one of those things we gunny sack and we better clear the slate of that. But but I think for me, there's a, 
there's, there's an embarrassment. It's not like I don't want it. It's almost like I want it too much. <laughs> you know, it's almost like they've given a starving person a menu to a banquet. <laughs> yes. But how about on your end? You know, uh, what's the awkwardness that uh, you see or feel when someone gives you a compliment? That was the thing when you gave me that compliment. First of all, thank you for that, Mark. I, I appreciate it. Um, I, I look at my discipline as a well-oiled machine, as you say. And then what does that make me do? It makes me think of all the areas where I'm not as disciplined or not a well-oiled machine or not uh, present or not eloquent. And uh, that is human nature, I believe. And I, maybe you can help me or the rest of our listeners. I feel the same way that you do where we've already talked about the respect that I have for you, but I still want to communicate with you in a very peer-to-peer, two guys sitting in a bar having a great conversation aspect. But then again, you look at your pedigree, you look at all that you've accomplished. For you to give me that compliment as just this guy that's trying to figure things out, it feels like you know, lack of worth on my part, perhaps. Well, something, I think this is a plus. I'm judgmental. I'm trying to be less judgmental about myself, especially with what I'm facing in life. And I think, again, one of the things when people say, so what else helps you find peace? And I've let go of having anything to prove or anything to chase. There's nothing I have to prove, nothing I have to chase. And what I realize is there's a lot I'd like to share because uh, I, I think I've developed a certain kind of wisdom about life, like, you know, in terms of what's important. And one of my frustrations is, at least in American society, doesn't have the patience for what's important. It seems like contemporary American society belongs to the smart, not to the wise. And I don't think that's a very positive uh, thing for our society. So I'm sharing things that uh, I'm not trying to be wise, but people will say, you know, you you kind of speak wisdom, Mark. I mean, you're not stupid, but you're much wiser than you are smart. And so letting go of so I've never been smart in terms of monetizing anything because mm. I've, ne- I've never chased after money and my bank account will tell you that money's never chased after me either. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I've let go of, of, of that. Uh, that was, for me, that was a fool's errand. Yeah. And probably it was uh, probably what it meant. I mean, someone just said to me, well, Mark, maybe it just didn't matter to you. And I, and I think that's true. I mean, beyond being able to support my family and people who work for me, I want them to be able to support their family. I'll actually share something with you because on one of my videos, I think I, I talked about transformation and I talk about the three Ps and I, I'm dealing with them because when you're close to the end of your life, for me, the three Ps of what I want to look back on are professional, professional purposeful, and personal. And so for me, professional, did I make a living able to support my family, fulfill those responsibilities? 
uh, enable the people that worked for me to do the same. Uh, purposeful is the the way I went about supporting myself and others. Is there anything that I feel ashamed of? And I don't think I've ever hurt anyone. I don't think I've ever taken advantage of anyone. Now, sometimes I'll, I might say something that might be hurtful. So we kind of semi-dodged a bullet about 15 minutes ago when I said, does your wife think you're in your head too much? Mm. Because frequently with people I find that are very disciplined, very accomplished, uh, sometimes the people they love will say, he's a good man, he's terrific, uh, but they're making excuses. So what's the button at? Uh, well, you know, it's just not his thing. He's, he's into accomplishment. He's into achieving things. He's into uh, setting goals. Well, do you ever feel emotionally lonely? Well, and they hem and haw, and the answer is yes. And uh, and what I've discovered is many of these people, many of these highly accomplished, often men, they want to feel close. They want to emotionally feel close. But that skill, that ability, that freedom is no match for where they're hypertrophied. Yes. And, and so, the, so the three Ps, professional, purposeful, and the third one is the most elusive, and that's personal. And in addition to personal being, you know, health, spirituality, and all that. And I'm working on this even with my own family. Is uh, My family knows I love them. But do they feel I love them? And those are different. And and it's interesting, when I've done some presentations, frequently to entrepreneurial communities, I'll say, raise your hand if you can remember fewer than five times when you and your dad, because, you know, men are often have trouble getting in touch with their feelings. You know, women, they give birth to children. It's, it's a little more natural. And it's amazing when I speak to these audiences, I'd say 75% of them say they can only remember fewer than five times when they really emotionally and deeply connected. And 50% of them will say never. And, and I'm bringing this up because I belong to a couple of motion, to entrepreneurial communities, and I talk fairly openly about what's going on, and people are starting to open up and say, you know, uh, I was really busy, and and my dad was getting sick and he was terminal and he was in a hospice and I know I should visit him. And then I said, the heck with it. I just shut everything down and I went there and I held his hand for three days. And, and the person sharing it with me just started sobbing, uh, saying it was maybe the most powerful moment of my life. And so part of what I'm trying to share with the world is that's tragic. And yet it's so common. It's so common that uh, we don't emotionally connect at that level. So, so I'm just sort of sharing that because for me, I'm not really emotionally shy. I'm socially shy. I'm an introvert. But I'm not emotionally shy. You know, I'm really comfortable with my feelings. My family is emotionally shy. Mm. 
I don't, I don't force conversations on them. I know they're very sad. I know they love me. I know they're incredibly devoted to me. My son's going to be my donor. And I am open to talking about any of this in any direction, but I can't force it on them. And I respect it. And I know uh, in the long run, it would be better for, for them and for me if we had those conversations. But I can't force it. And it's crazy because I have, I have the one interviews. <laughs> but that may be the most important of the three Ps. That look, and, I, and I'm glad my family knows that I love them. But I'm, I'm not sure I ever had that conversation with my dad. And I feel more badly for his not having had it, probably because I'm not sure he ever had it with anyone. Exactly, that generation, right? Yeah, that generation. And here's an interesting anecdote. You know, so I'm, I'm in my 70s. And I went to college at uh, UC Berkeley during the anti-war Vietnam, hippie, oh, wow. all that sort of stuff in the 60s. Wow. Hate Ashbury and, and everything. Oh, the hate Ashbury, yeah, right across the bridge there. People's Park, all, all these kind of things. Kent State, unfortunately, uh, where there was a shooting there. And I remember, grew up in Boston. I came home. I got off the plane, and I had a beard. I had sandals. I had long hair. And I go up to my dad because I'd been bathed in this, you know, the make love, not war thing. And I go up to him, and I and I give him a big hug, and his arms just froze. And they were just stiff by his side. And so it felt like rejection. And so I I hugged him and I went, oh, okay. And then I thought, oh, I've done something wrong. And then what I realized is he wasn't emotionally close to his dad. Uh, because it took about two or three trips home before I realized he's not hugging me, not because he doesn't want to. He doesn't know how to. So with that knowledge, I remember coming home. Still had the sandals and the long hair. Put my arms around him. His arms froze. And I whispered in his ear, hug your son. <laughs> it's long overdue and we both need it. And with that, he took his stiff arms and he threw them around me, almost like the floppy arms of that quitter in E.T., you know, floppy mm -hmm. arms. <laughs> and he put them around me. And almost convulsively, he pulled me into him. So he was so starved for it. It's not because he didn't want it. It's not because I don't want the compliment. It's that there's, there's parts of us that can be so starved for certain things that, that we just keep it away. We keep it away until it's too late. We keep it away until we're on our deathbed and, and then it's gone. That was a real long tangent. I don't even know if it was relevant, but I think it's a good story. <laughs> it's very relevant, and I love the Freeform Association. Can I ask you a question, Mark? Sure, sure. You're talking about the knowledge that this is a conversation that you need to have with your family and that you'll be better off. Are you willing to let that go unsaid, even though it will be uncomfortable for them? Or would you just say, listen, let's have the conversation it's long overdue. We both need it. It's a very good question. I'm not sure that I have an answer because something that I also did uh, 15 years ago, 
I resolve that, and this is so non-military, so non-traditional coaching. But 15 years ago, I said to myself, I am never going to try to persuade or convince another human being to do anything. Because usually it didn't last. Now, sometimes it might. And, and, and I can understand if you're teaching a skill in the military and athletics and you push them and you push through the pain and then they learn the skill and they have a breakthrough. But we're not talking about those kinds of skills. And it's interesting because, and here's something I, I'll throw your way because a lot of coaching is, you know, coming up with goals, coming up with strategies and getting people and holding people accountable because they get sloppy. And what I realized is I am not a coach. I'm a coach, but I'm not a coach because I don't have any trouble holding anyone accountable. What I am, and I'd like you know, like you to sort of consider this, is I am a catalyst. Hmm. And a catalyst connects much more deeply and much more intimately with a substrate in order to become a product. There's no wiggle room. And so part of what I'm doing now with many of the people that I mentor is to, uh, and, and that's why I asked you about the three years from now, the 360 is brainstorming with people about, I don't like the term personal brand, but personal brand, something that when we brainstorm and we fool around with it, they can't get it out of their head. They go, oh my God, that's it. I love the way that feels. I love the way that embodies me. That vision holds them accountable because it's so tantalizing. Right. And so uh, that's one of the things that I, I delight in. And that's why I think I said at the beginning is with people who I deem to come from real goodness and real a hard work ethic, and I may just be projecting, but I find selling, hustling, I was never very good at it, and it's exhausting. But if you can land in something that embodies really who you are, that holds you accountable and it attracts people. Yeah, it's a natural and, next step. Yeah, and so I've been encouraging people you know, even though I'm a member of this, the 100 coaches, Marshall Goldsmith's group, you know, you yeah. know, pretty esteemed coaches. Very illustrious, yes. But personally, I think the coaching field is oversaturated. You know, it's an idea whose time has come and gone. <laughs> because so many people are coaches. There's so many certifications. There's so many this and that. And I believe it needs to be disrupted. Because when it started, oh, Oh, you mean you can coach people other than athletics? Oh, yeah, we can, we can coach you in all kinds of ways to be a leader and all that sort of stuff. So what I've been encouraging people is if you can see yourself as a catalyst, kind of like something that I learned from a good friend of mine. He was the chief operating officer of the Marines in the 90s, and he became the CEO of the U.S. Intrepid on the Hudson, General oh, wow. Marty Steele. And one of the things he taught me, because we worked on a transition program for returning Marines from 97 to 98, and then the bottom fell out. And I think the family that owned the Chicago Browns, the, the Randy Lerner family, they, they, uh, they just couldn't uh, support him. But 
one of the things that uh, General Steele taught me, uh, because the most valuable thing that Marines took from that uh, week and a half immersion program was they got an hour and a half one-on-one time with General Steele. And I said, what'd you talk about, Marty? And he said, well, I hit them with the five realies. What's the five realies? He'd say, Marine, how's it going? Well, you know, it's really different to be a war zone and to be home. And then he repeated, and I understand that it's difficult. Uh, what's really going on? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm getting into some arguments because they just sort of don't get it. And I understand you're getting into a lot of arguments and they just don't get it. But what's really going on? And he said when he got to the fourth or fifth really, a number of these Marines would look at him like deer in the headlights and they, they would say, I saw and did horrible things, sir. And when I close my eyes, I see them more vividly. So I don't close my eyes much. And he gave them a direct order saying, if you're a Marine in active duty in a war zone, we've all been there. You, you've earned the right to a life. And he got letters from spouses saying, you know, you saved my spouse's life. But the five realies, I, I think, is a helpful thing. And I'm encouraging people that are coaches to do that. And what will happen? And, and they'll, they'll get annoyed. They'll get angry. Well, I just told you. Oh, now you're getting annoyed. But what's really getting, what's really going on? And when you do it, people will often open up about what's really going on. And you can feel the conversation flex. Hmm. And it's different. So I don't know if that makes any sort of sense. I'm sharing it with you because you really impressed me as someone that can go as deep as anyone needs to go. Thank you. I, I, I'd like to think I try to do that. I, I found that if I can go deep with them, that gives them the courage to go deep as well. Yeah, absolutely. So what else do you want to talk about, my friend? (laughs) All right. So how many narcissists does it take to change a light bulb? Tell me. None. They use gaslighting. Ooh, ooh, that's a good one. I thought you'd appreciate that one. Yeah. So, Mark, I appreciate you. I know that you've given me so much of your time and your experience and your wisdom. Where can we go to learn more about I'm Dying to Tell You? You have another incredible podcast as well. Tell us where these resources are, where we can go to learn more about what you're doing. Well, I think where I'm devoting a fair amount of time is uh, uh, on YouTube and TikTok to a lesser extent because I still can't figure out TikTok. Yeah, I can't either. But YouTube, it's I'm Dying to Tell You, Dr. Mark. And I'm just sharing things uh, that I've learned, like my first episode was Michelangelo dying. And what I talked about is Michelangelo saw the angel in the marble and carved till he set it free. So one of my first awakenings from all this is I saw what was important inside all that is unimportant. And I've just lopped off everything that was unimportant. And I could have done that years ago, but didn't. So I'm sharing these little things that I hope will inspire people. Uh, uh, Here's one thing I'll also share. One of my other favorite episodes is uh, visionary dying. So I once, uh, there was a time a few years ago where I played Steve Jobs coming back from the dead. I had the turtleneck. I 
<laughs> I played him from 1996 to 2007 when he came back to Apple mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, and when he introduced the iPhone. And, and because of my work with suicidal patients, I, I, I developed this ability to look at the world through other people's eyes and feel their feelings. So that's what helped me to be effective with suicidal people is that when I could look at the world through their eyes and feel their feelings enough where I became suicidal, they felt less alone in it. And they started to cry. And that was surgical empathy. We, we drained the hopelessness abscess. But when I was doing the Steve Jobs thing, what I realized, and this is probably worth writing down if you're listening or watching, uh, I came up with the three Ds of being a visionary. And the the first D is they define reality beyond what's possible or even imaginable. So Steve Jobs, it was, we're going to have personal computers for everyone, and we're going to do an iPhone. And and Elon Musk, uh, when he's not getting into trouble with his tweets, says, well, we're going to have an electric car. So you define reality beyond what's possible or imaginable. The second D is you declare your intention to make it so. Mm. So Steve Jobs had something called a reality distortion field. He could convince you and himself of anything. And then the third D is strategy. You decide strategy. Define reality, uh, declare intention, and uh, decide strategy. And most of these people are terrible managers. And so get big enough so that instead of running over your people because you're so busy and you're stuck in those three Ds, but you don't know much about dealing with people, you know, get people who do a better job than you do. But I, I converted that to visionary dying because I know what a good death is. Uh, one of my mentors who got me into the death and dying area in suicide prevention doing house calls, he wrote an article called The Good Death. And I meet all the criteria of it, except living till you're 90. I mean, that would be great, but it's probably not going to happen. And I declared my intention to live out all those, those criteria. And then I decided strategy. And as I mentioned earlier, probably the biggest part of the strategy is getting a great team that I can have trust, confidence, and faith in. And But you've really helped me because probably need to have some of those conversations with my family for their sake and my sake. So I'm going to take that away from our conversation today. Beautiful. I, well, I'm taking so much away from the conversation. So I'm glad I was able to give something that is useful for you as well. Well, it's very useful. So, so that's where I'd like people to go. I do have a website. I, I have a bunch of people who are creating legacies for me. You know, I, I, I've mentored a lot of people over my lifetime. And uh, so I have a website, markgoulston.com, and it's being, it'll be redone in the next month or two. And I have no idea what they're doing with it, but uh, uh, they're creating some sort of a legacy a- along with a, uh, a Mark Goulston bot. So we have a bot. You can ask it any question. And I said, it's got to sound a little more empathic than AI. <laughs> than mechanical, right. Than mechanical. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so they're trying to teach AI to have a different tone. 
than things where you people check the boxes and then they don't implement. <laughs> yeah, and so people can do that. Uh, my LinkedIn is pretty uh, up to date. Something else I'm proud of is on LinkedIn we have something called 90 Second Mentor. So from my other podcast, we'll take excerpts of wisdom nuggets from people ranging from Ken Blanchard to uh, Jordan Peterson to uh, Dan Pink, Daniel Goldman. And every Wednesday, we drop like a minute and a quarter, little nugget of wisdom for people to listen to with their teams and think, oh, could we do that here? So I'm, I'm uh, pleased with that and hope hope that will continue uh, even if I am not around. It will continue. All the work that you've done, all the people you've touched, your impact is undeniable, Martin. You're changing the lives of people even as we speak that are listening to this. The, the ripple effect from the huge impact you've made on everyone else. Everyone's worried about being a, an influencer and creating influence, but you're this catalyst that creates impact. And that's what we need in this world. So thank you. You know, if you say any more, I'm not going to be able to just say thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That's my goal. That's my goal. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. Um, I look forward to learning more from you and and everything that you're doing. And again, thank you for the work that you've done for everyone. Well, thank you for helping me today. It's an honor to do so. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.